and turn to chapter 13. Uh, I should be starting the verse ahead of that uh, in just a minute, but, uh, but go ahead and turn there. And I find it very uh, providential that uh, this morning, as um, obviously Sally and the Fravel family is very um, you know, heavy on our hearts and, and, and thinking of them often, uh, this morning we're going to be spending some time talking about the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and Sally, just in the short uh, bit of time that I knew her, was, was someone that the, the power of the Holy Spirit was very obvious, uh, was very evident, uh, whether spending time in prayer with her, uh, just even in conversation with her, hearing her, or her zeal for God's word, or even hearing all these uh, tales and accounts as well of her uh, sharing Christ uh, with so many different people. And I just find this is very, uh, very amazing of God to be able to do that. Um, of, even as we're going to be talking about, again, these, these dynamics of what it means to live by the power of the Holy Spirit, just the power that he has, uh, knowing that, that Sally as well was someone that, that knew that and lived that out and was a phenomenal uh, model for us uh, even in, in going forward. Um, again, we'll be in uh, an Acts, uh, again, starting in chapter 12, verse 25, going through the end of, of chapter 13. And uh, you might remember uh, last week as we had gone through chapter 12, we spent time kind of in Jerusalem. Uh, with the, the death of, of James, the apostle, with the, with the death of Herod, and even with the imprisonment and rescue of Peter, as well as a snapshot into Jerusalem. But from chapter 11, the previous chapter, we had uh, been, been talking about the, how the gospel had been going out, even to the Gentiles, to Cornelius and to his household, and how uh, even in the, the promise that Jesus Christ had made before he ascended into heaven— uh, where he said that the Holy Spirit would come down upon the apostles, they would receive power, and that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And really what we're seeing here now in our text is really how it is going out to the ends of the earth, really starting to see that in full force in our passage this morning. And so I would invite you to, to please stand for the reading of God's word as we hear that, but uh, to stand as well as an act of submission and yieldedness uh, to God's holy word. We'll be reading starting verse 25 of Acts 12, and we'll read through uh, verse uh, 15, and then we'll be skipping down uh, to verse uh, 42 after that. So if you have your Bibles in front of you, just follow along that way. Acts 12, starting verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and, when they, had John, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, 
you enemy of all righteousness, fool of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And I'll skip down to verse 42. This is after Paul preaches to them. Verse 42 says, And they went out. The people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, your word is truth. And uh, Lord God, as, as we are sitting under your word, Lord, your authoritative word, God, we ask that you would be going before us, stirring our affections, stirring our hearts and minds, Lord, in worship and in submission to you. Help us to be changed, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I know that was a longer text to read, so I appreciate your patience for that. standing. Well, one of the most talked about issues, if you can remember before coronavirus, and if you can remember uh, just before all the protests and and riots of some things that would actually be in the news, a headline in the news before all that, it was a while ago, I know, but one of the things that will sometimes grace the covers of, of news magazines and newspapers is the uses and sources of energy, the never ending quest for renewable energy, uh, for sources from wind and solar and water, uh, the questions over the safety of nuclear power and coal power. In fact, it has become such a mainstream discussion point to talk about energy and power that it is all over Hollywood as well. A major dynamic of the Marvel universe, of, of the, the Marvel movies, was the use of vibranium, uh, this, this element that powered a whole uh, culture and, and city and did many other things as well, in, in Black Panther and in Captain America and others. 
um, in Avatar and in Star Trek, there are uh, th- as a main theme of, of many of those movies that they have as well to pursue this problem of, of energy and of power. Well, A.J. Gordon, he was a 19th century minister, he tells this story. He said that an American with an English gentleman was viewing the Niagara Whirlpool Rapids when he said to his friend, come and I'll show you the greatest unused power in the world. And taking him to the foot of Niagara Falls, there, he said, is the greatest unused power in the world. Ah, no, my brother, not so, was the reply. The greatest unused power in the world is the Holy Spirit of the living God. Now, it's obviously you're talking about two different things, kind of a silly story to kind of show you that. But the point that A.J. Gordon is making here is actually one that is very worth our attention. That we often fail to realize not only the power of the Holy Spirit, but his power which is so often, which is so readily available to us through him. And that is a point well worth diving into and that this passage here in Acts chapter 14 as we see the power of the Holy Spirit on full display again, it's something worth our, our attention, something worth our worship, worth our consideration this morning. And what we'll specifically see is that because the power of the Holy Spirit is greater than the forces of this world, then let us live in the power of His might. Let's live in the power of His might. And we'll see this kind of in three different ways. Again, in that long section, uh, we see three main things that the Holy Spirit is doing where he is displaying his power. Is that the Holy Spirit, he directs, the Holy Spirit overcomes, and the Holy Spirit regenerates. He de- and he, and seeing all this as well, that he desires to exercise his power in each and every one of you this morning. So look back in our text, Acts chapter 12 and verse 25. And where again, it says that Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul, they returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And then there we have this list of, of all these different folks there in verses 1, uh, really there in verse 1 of Barnabas, uh, Simeon, it's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who was a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And we notice here with all of these, these people, a couple of things. Number one, you see the name of Mark or, or John Mark. And this is the same Mark that, is the, that authored uh, Mark the Gospel. But Mark is actually going to play a, a kind of an interesting role in the account of, of, of Acts here. Well, you maybe even noticed when we read it through earlier that he is here at their beginning, but he will eventually leave. And there's much to be made about that, especially when we get to chapter 15. But for now, just notice that John Mark came with them from Jerusalem to be a companion of Paul and Barnabas. And he's actually Barnabas' cousin, according to Colossians 4.10. But this church that is here in Antioch, it was made up of teachers and prophets. If you notice, from a wide variety of geographic, cultural, and class backgrounds. There are Europeans. Uh, there are Africans. Uh, there are those who were friends with Herod the Tetrarch. There are others who don't say anything about their class. And we have Jews as well, like Paul. These great backgrounds. Great diversity among the church. Well, what's noteworthy here isn't just simply the diversity with the church. I mean, diversity is, is just a thing in and of itself. 
But I believe why Luke is, is, is telling us this, this great diversity, is because with all of these theoretical obstacles, and we sometimes have a hard enough time getting along with people who are just like us, maybe within our own household, and with all these obstacles of, again, of, of, of geography and just, and just culture of what you're accustomed to, again, of class as well, and growing up rich or poor, and these things that can so often be in our way, and they have all of these barriers, theoretical barriers, within the leadership of the church in Antioch. And the picture that we're given here is not a church of divisiveness, but it's a church of significant unity that are, they are together hearing from the Holy Spirit of one accord, even through all of these obstacles. The great unity which can only be brought about ultimately by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then there's this, as the Holy Spirit speaks them, gives this commissioning to them. As there in verse 2, while they were Worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Just like in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit initiated this great work being done, this great exercise of, of power even to and through the apostles. Here is again happening. The Holy Spirit is initiating this great work. But notice what the church is doing when the Holy Spirit is speaking to them and, is, uh, and, and does this great work. What were they doing? They were in the midst of worshiping and fasting. Notice that they weren't in some, in some kind of state of, of frenzy, kind of hyping themselves up to, uh, to, to work up hearing from the Holy Spirit. And they weren't abstaining from where God's Word tells us that the Holy Spirit is found with His people in worship. And so often we have uh, this great desire for clarity for the Lord's will. I know I oftentimes do as well. Uh, maybe there, there might be things concer- uh, concerning our future. You know, what is this next year going to look like for us? With concerning maybe our jobs, maybe concerning school, maybe concerning relationships that you have. So what is God's will for me for this particular relationship? Whatever it might be, we often desire that, that, that God would make his will very clear in our lives. But what is so important about how this church and how the apostles received this clarity for God's will is that they were in the midst of doing what the Holy Spirit had already told them to do. They were already worshiping the living God. They were, they were fasting, something that was a, a part of, 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 a, of a discipline of the faith. And they were doing these things. And it was there in the midst of their obedience and of their faithfulness as a church that the Holy Spirit gave them direction and discernment as to what they might do and gave them great unity in so doing. So the question before is, if you have that desire or saying, God, just just show me what to do. I just want to know what to do. The question is, well, are you already doing what he has already told you to do? Why would we expect greater clarity He's already written down all of this in his word, and we're having a hard time doing those things. Are you already doing what he has already revealed? And so this commission for Paul and Barnabas to be sent out, it doesn't just simply stop at the Holy Spirit, but it came through the church. I think that's an important thing for us to notice as well. It was 
through the church, that there was no Lone Ranger Christianity here. Again, a term that I know I've used before of where, oh, Paul and Barnes, they heard it and they're just going. No, it is through the church that this is happening. This is God's design. This is God's plan. Again, there are no just individual Christians left to themselves. But God has, has called for, for nourishment and strength and growth and discernment to take place through the church. I think that's something that's so hard for us right now, probably more so than, than a lot of other times in history for decades, when we have become so separated from the church uh, just because of, of the pandemic that's going on where uh, we're not regularly fellowshipping with, with other believers, where I know for many as well it is difficult to, uh, to be here on a Sunday morning as well, and folks that are, that are joining in through the, through the live stream, um, that it is, it is difficult. There are challenges to it, and there are very real challenges where there's a greater temptation for us to just abstain from the church, to just be content with this, this separation from the church. But the reality is that God desires for us to be there. And even though there is a, a season right now where some folks are not able to, to physically be together, where all of us are, are suffering in a way from not being together in the way that, that, that we would desire for us to, uh, to be together, and that God would as well, uh, that, that we would not be content with, with all that, but that we would pursue as God opens up doors to, uh, to joining together, gathering together, to being the church as he has called us to be. And so they lay their hands on him, uh, this, this sign of, of, that expresses identification, sending them out as part of the church, and that it is the Holy Spirit who is the one doing this. He's working. He is, he is all through this. But he doesn't simply just direct, but he also is the Spirit who overcomes, who overcomes great, great things. Look there again at the second point there, starting in verse 12. Excuse me, starting at verse 4, that the Holy Spirit overcomes. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they were sent down from Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, that has the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. We'll stop there for a moment. Just to consider the, just the, the, the folks that are involved here, the, the characters that, that are here in this narrative. We have here certainly Paul and Barnabas. And by the way, Barnabas was, was from Cyprus. So it makes sense this would be a, a place early on on their first missionary journey. We have here Sergius Paulus, the, the proconsul, which is like a governor uh, of the island. Um, and then we have this individual given two names, Bar-Jesus and Elimas, the same person given two different names, Elimas the magician. And this word magician is the word magos, and this is... Uh, the word we, that we often think of around Christmas time, because this is the word magi, that this was someone who was uh, very involved, not just astronomy, as we know again from, from Christmas time, the three wise men, uh, but also astrology, and they were oftentimes very invested in, in, in other powers and in very dark things as well. There's a long history of that. They, and even as we see this individual, Bar Jesus, Elimas, that he is indeed a tool of Satan to disrupt the advancement of the gospel. 
uh, to disrupt the work of the Lord. But notice there what's, what's happening there, starting in verse 9, as Paul sees this, all this, this, this conflict that is going on. Says, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This conflict that's going on between Paul and Bar-Jesus. This is not the only place in the book of Acts where such a, con, uh, a conflict exists. In Acts 8, uh, in Acts 16, and in Acts 19, there are similar conflicts between the advancement of the gospel and, and dark forces and, and magicians, uh, those that are opposed to the gospel going forth. These battles being waged with these, these people who have a dark power. And even if you notice this account here, if you were to ask, like, what's the, what's the main point of here in verses 4 through 12 of this, this whole account? Because you might immediately think that, the, that it's about the, the salvation of, of the proconsul, but really at the, where most of the, of the bulk of the text is given is to the, the actual conflict, not necessarily even to the, to the salvation, but to this fight that is going on between the two. And Luke focuses on that. Bar-Jesus is first introduced. The climax is Paul's prophetic judgment upon him. And even to kind of build up the tension of what's going on here in this fight, there's all these contrasts that are here. He's called Bar-Jesus. Bar is the Aramaic word meaning son. So his name is son of Jesus, or Jesus is a, means salvation as well, or, God, or the salvation is of God. And so his name is son of Jesus, or son of salvation. And what does Paul call him? Playing on his name. You son of the devil. There's a great conflict which is going on. And even Luke notices, or Luke points out that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. But Bar-Jesus, Elimas, he's also filled with something. He is filled with, with all deceit and villainy. There is a great conflict between these two of, of light and darkness. And the reason why Luke gives so much attention to this is because there is something much bigger going on than a simple individual conflict. That God is judging such obstructions in order to open the door of faith to the Gentiles. See, Satan, this is from Genesis to Revelation, Satan has this significant grip upon the nations, upon the world. That as God called out Abraham from among the Chaldeans, from among the Gentiles, from among the nations, that that there are places over and over again that describe how the Gentile world is just filled with darkness. It is all through the law, all through the prophets. Even in, in Deuteronomy 4, as the Israelites are about to enter into the promised land, there's this warning given to them. That is, and beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. That God has allowed for Satan to have this grip upon the Gentile world. 
even as we think of, of the, the conflict which happened between Christ and Satan and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. Remember that Satan offers to Jesus all the kingdoms of this world and their glory. That there was a, there was a sense, which that's, that's a very real offer, that he had this, this hold upon the Gentile world, again, all ultimately underneath the, the sovereignty of God. But he had a, a genuine hold upon the Gentile worlds that were filled with darkness. And even Paul realizes this as well, when, when Jesus, that, and the, uh, the road to, to Damascus, again, we looked at it from Acts 9, but again, there's, there's other accounts that Paul gives later on in Acts. And in Acts 26, he's giving another account of what happened to him on that road to Damascus. He says this is, this is why God had, had called him to, uh, to himself. It was to open this, the, the Gentiles, as he was an apostle to the Gentiles, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul and Barnabas, being used by the Holy Spirit, who shines light out of darkness, who overcomes the darkness and sets the captives free. While the Holy Spirit used Paul and Barnabas to show what God was doing on a grander scale, the reality is that this work of peeling the grip of Satan off the nations is a work which we are invited into to bring light where there is darkness, to bring life where there is death, to bring hope where there is anguish. But as Paul and Barnabas are realizing here, there is a cost to sincere service to Christ. The reality is, if you never share your faith, you will never look like a fool. Well, at least in that regard. Never stand for righteousness on some important issue, and you will never be rejected. Never reach out to the needy, and you will never be taken advantage of. Never open yourself up to others, and you will never have your heart broken. Never go to Cyprus, and you will never be subjected to an intense confrontation from Satan. As Kent Hughes put it, seriously follow Christ, and you will experience a gamut of sorrows almost completely unknown to the unbeliever. We need to ask ourselves is, have we spurned God's, God's will due to something being too hard? Have we spurned God's will due to something being too hard? Paul, again, knows all of this. He's experienced this. And as he's writing to the Roman church, as in the midst of, 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 of a place where there is uh, depravity, where there is hatred for Christians, he reminds them of this beautiful truth in Romans 8. Says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the truth which Paul clung to, and that is the truth which we must every day cling to. Of the Holy Spirit, he overcomes. The Holy Spirit 
Uh, he directs. Then lastly, the Holy Spirit regenerates. He regenerates. Here first, just the, the setting for this, this regeneration which takes place there in, in verse 13. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Paul's time here in uh, Pisidian Antioch is one that is filled with obstacles again. John Mark leaves them. And there's also, it was actually a very challenging trek that they had to make to get there. There's, there's mountain ranges, there's bandits, all kinds of, of treacherous things that they endured, actually, on this journey. But John Mark, their companion, he, he leaves them. There's tons of speculation about this. I'll let Keith clear this up completely for you when we get to Acts 15. Uh, but for now, just know that there's, it is all just speculation. Um, you know, whether it was the hardship of the journey, whether you contracted malaria, if there was a disagreement with Paul over the gospel ministry, all of these and more have been suggested and none can be substantiated. Luke was silent uh, on the matter, uh, but he did clarify that it was a serious matter for Paul, serious enough to create a falling out with Barnabas on a later occasion, again in Acts 15. But he leaves. There's a difficult journey ahead of them, but they arrive to proclaim the gospel and his encounter with Bar-Jesus, Elimas, is describing the means by which individuals are transferred out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. That was a, a picture of what God is about to do in this Gentile world where it is, where we praise God for the salvation of the proconsul, where there's going to be a great harvest of souls coming in, where the darkness is being defeated. It was defeated at the cross, but now there's, it, is, it is being seen as it is being wiped away right before them as people are turning to the Lord. I want, you to, I want to read what Paul says to, uh, there at the, at the synagogue, made up mainly of Jews. They ask him to speak. And so verses 16 through 41, I just want to, want to preach it. I want you just to, just to hear these words of Paul, of what he is saying to these people, starting in verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. 
brothers, son of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that was promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son today, I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he, let, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Paul preaches this. You can tell the whole emphasis is on the the Jerusalem Jews' responsibility for Jesus' death, the the contrast between death on the cross and the triumph of the resurrection, the apostolic witness, the proofs from Scripture, and the call to repentance. In fact, you'll notice that this is a very similar sermon to the one that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. At the heart of it all was God's mercy and faithfulness toward Israel. Remember, it was the Lord chose, the Lord made great, the Lord put up with, the Lord gave, the Lord removed, and the Lord raised up. It was his mercy to you. He slows down, draw attention to God's promise to David. That David is the, is the, that Christ is the descendant of David, that Christ is the greater David. And Paul not only uses the story of Scripture to show the Lord's mercy and faithfulness, but the promises given by the Holy Spirit through David, which point the listeners toward the one who has risen from the grave, the one who conquered sin and death and Satan. Only by virtue of the resurrection of Jesus were the promises to David fulfilled and your freedom purchased and your sins forgiven. The message to the people of Pisidian Antioch was just as true for them as it is for you today. Are you in need of your sins being forgiven? you feel the weight of your own inadequacies and failures before a holy and righteous God? Do you feel enslaved to sin where you cannot get out of habits and cycles of perpetual sin and you feel the shame, you feel the guilt, desiring to come out under that and unto freedom? Jesus conquered sin 
He conquered death. He conquered Satan once for all. Turn to him. Trust him. By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And Paul gives a warning from Habakkuk 1.5. And the whole thing with Habakkuk is he was giving, as those words were being given to Habakkuk, God was going to do something amazing. He was going to judge Israel, wicked Israel, with a people that are even more wicked than they are. That was the amazing thing God was doing there. And God is saying, I'm going to do something amazing again. Repent, for I'm going to do something unbelievable. Wicked Babylonians will judge you because you refuse to repent and believe. And again, if you reject the word of the Lord, something unbelievable will happen. God will turn toward the Gentiles. These Gentiles who worship and sacrifice to a myriad of gods who elevate man himself to the status of a god, mocking their creator. In fact, in Pisidian Antioch, there was something called a a nymphaeum. It was a place of worship of nymphs, creatures, these little fairies which represent nature. The Gentiles would worship just about anything instead of the living God who created all things. Could God really turn his love and divine grace toward such a people? It was unbelievable. It says there then that the remainder of our text, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts in Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. God's plan was always for the Gentiles. All nations to have the salvation of the Lord. Text quoted by Paul, Isaiah 49.6, originally envisaged Israel's destiny as being that of a witness to God, to all the nations of the world. But it was Jesus, the Messiah, who fulfilled that divine destiny. It is he who was the light of the nations. And now you and I, we who are in Christ, are likewise called to carry forth that light to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Holy Spirit does this amazing thing, bringing about a great harvest of souls among the Gentiles, turning hearts of stone into hearts of flesh to receive the living word of God preached to them. Charles Spurgeon, a great minister from the 19th century, he gives this account from early on in his ministry. It was in 1857, A day or two before preaching at the Crystal Palace, he says, I went to decide where the platform should be fixed. And in order to test the acoustic properties of the building, I cried in a loud voice, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. 
in one of the galleries, a workman who knew nothing of what was being done heard the words, and they came like a message from heaven to his soul. He was smitten with conviction on account of sin, put down his tools, went home, and there, after a season of spiritual struggling, found peace and life by beholding the Lamb of God. It is through the Word of God that the Holy Spirit worked on the heart of this man. It is through the Word of God that the hearts of the Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. It is through the Word of God that my own conversion took place, recounting the verses and stories of God's love and forgiveness as I felt the weight of my own sin and its consequences. The power of the Holy Spirit is an amazing thing. It's often an untapped power source where we go out day by day without leaning upon the Spirit of God for the strength which we so desperately need. He can unify and build up a church. He can defeat the grip of Satan. He uses his word to change hearts and lives, and he desires to shape you into the image of Christ Jesus. Let us forsake our self-sufficiency and live in light of the Spirit's great power. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, Lord God, You are all-powerful, self-sufficient. And Lord, I just pray that, God, as we have have heard these words of your power, the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, help us to lean upon you. You might do a great work in our midst, Lord, that we might see it and behold and proclaim and worship you, Lord, for it is you who is doing it. We praise you. In Christ's name, amen.